And with that, please take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 11. Job 11 this morning. We'll be covering Job 11 through 14. You know, hope can be hard to come by in this life sometimes. We look at the world in which we live and we don't see much hope. We look at the country in which we live and we have a hard time having hope. Sometimes we can even look at the, the overarching culture of Christianity today and it can be hard to find hope. But there is hope. Did you know that? There is, in fact, hope. Hope, we define oftentimes in our assembly, an earnest and joyful expectation. The highest degree of well-founded expectation of good. That's how we at Legacy Baptist Church have memorized the definition of biblical hope. Biblical hope is not a fearful longing. It is a joyful expectation. It is not about me wishing something would happen. It's about me earnestly expecting something to happen. That's the biblical definition of hope. And there is hope. It's not a hope that's founded in our nation or government. It's not a hope that's founded in church organizations. It's not a hope that's founded in human nature. It is an eternal hope. A hope that places no faith in anything created or governed by man, but rather places its entire expectation upon the character of God. In old German nursery rhymes, there's the story of Hansel and Gretel. And it's actually, uh, as most German nursery rhymes are, it's somewhat of a morbid story when you actually look at what the the story is in, in a whole. But there's a concept in Hansel and Gretel that we often use, and I, I, we are mostly familiar with it, but because we have young children that uh, join us in these services, um, I will remind us. In the story of Hansel and Gretel, as these children are being taken away from home, they drop, first time, pebbles along their way so that when they get to their destination, they can trace those pebbles back home. The way that we normally understand it or remember it from Hansel and Gretel is the dropping of breadcrumbs from point to point to point. When they didn't have pebbles, they used breadcrumbs to mark their path as they traveled so that they could pick those breadcrumbs up, and it would lead them back home. Well, today, in Job 11 through 14, we're going to be following breadcrumbs. I'm calling this following the breadcrumbs of God's character. And as we pick up each of those breadcrumbs, leading us back to something, what those breadcrumbs are going to lead us to is the hope that we have in this life, that as we are seeing each element of God's character, and we're hitting each element of God's character, God's character is going to incrementally lead us to a body of truth that gives us hope, not in this life, but hope in the life to come that sustains us in this life. So that's what we're going to look at this morning in Job 11 through 14. If you have an outline, you'll notice that the outline, or that the title is Resurrection Hope. We sang songs on mercy and grace, 
we will continue to progress through that outline in our singing as much as we will progress through that outline in my preaching this morning. So if you have that outline, keep it handy. You'll be able to see that progression even in the songs that we're singing as Brother Grismore mentioned. But let's talk about it this morning. The breadcrumbs of God's character that lead believers to their great and only hope in this life and the next, our hope in the resurrection. Let's look at our first point in chapter 11 this morning of, of Job. God is great in mercy and in grace. God is great in mercy and in grace. We now hear in Job 11 from the last of the three comforters mentioned at the beginning part of the book. This man is named Zophar. He is a Naamathite. He begins in verses 2 and 3 with the prototypical response, we could say, uh, to Job in responding to Job's arguments, which is that of vision. He says in verse 2, should not the multitude of words be answered and should not, and should a man full of talk be justified? Should thy lies make men hold their peace? And when thou mockest, shall no man make thee ashamed? Job, you're wrong. And I have to answer this. We've seen this with every one of the, the false comforters so far. And this, uh, Zophar is no different. He says, nope, you're wrong. He calls Job a liar. He calls him a mocker of God's character. He even appeals to God himself in verses 4 and 5, wishing that God would speak and answer Job's words. God, if only you would speak and show Job that what he's saying is foolishness. If only you would answer his words. And so what we do see here is that these men are very confident in their actions. Zophar is even appealing to God. God, if, if you would only answer Job here. And so these men, though they are wrong and we know they are wrong, they do have a false confidence in in the truth of, of what they're saying. But we must remember that even the best of intentions do not change error into truth. Just because a person is very well-meaning in their error, it doesn't change the fact that it's error. Just because a person believes in error with all their hearts doesn't make it truth. Truth is truth. Error is error. And even a man with the absolute best intentions when in error is in error. So Zophar's particular wish from God is that God would show Job how much deeper God's wisdom is than Job can understand. Zophar is confident in this. If Job only knew what God knew, and if Job comprehended the depth of God's wisdom, he would see that God was in fact giving Job less than Job deserved in punishment and in judgment. He was actually giving him less than what Job should have gotten. In verses 7, 8, and 9, Zophar continued to expound upon God's greatness. He says, Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? It is as high as heaven. What canst thou do? Deeper than hell, what canst thou know? The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. And he continues, He says, God is everywhere. God is in everything. God knows all. God sees all. God is all. No man can oppose his will. No man can withstand his purposes. Job then, excuse me, Zophar then makes a request of Job in verses 13 and 15. 13 through 15. He says, if thou prepare thine heart and stretch out thine hands toward him, if iniquity be in thine hand, put it far away from thee, and let not wickedness dwell in thy tabernacles. For then shalt thou lift up thy face without spot. Yea, thou shalt be steadfast and shalt not fear. Zophar is sure that if Job were to repent, 
God would swiftly restore him. His confidence in God's mercy and grace is such that this repentance would cause Job, as he says, to shine forth, to be full of comfort and to be secure. He reminds Job in verse 18, there is hope, Job. There is hope. But notice what he says in verse 20. But the eyes of the wicked fail, not escape, and their hope shall be as the giving up of the ghost. Now of all of the men that have spoken so far, of all the speeches that we have heard, Zophar's speech is the nearest to true comfort. It is the nearest to what Job actually, what would have actually helped Job. But see, it never gets there. It never gets all the way to comfort because these men can still not rightly discern God's purposes. They cannot understand that God's purposes as rooted in God's character is not to judge Job for sin, that Job is not being judged for the physical sins of his life, that this is a trial, a testing, a temptation upon Job. His teaching, however, is very good in many respects. Zophar reminds us that God's plans are much higher than ours, that God's ways are much higher than ours, that that his thoughts are beyond finding out. We know this from Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. It is not for man to know the mind of God, nor can we ever assume that we can pinpoint God's fullest thoughts or intentions apart from that which he has explicitly taught us in his word. Zophar even gives Job good advice that this instance should cause Job to search his heart to see if there's anything between him and God, to put away any transgression from him. This is all good advice. The problem is that when when Zophar says in verse 14, if iniquity be in thy hand, put it far away, we know from the context that that if is not a conditional if. Zophar is not saying you may or may not be a sinner. Zophar is looking at Job and saying you are a sinner and you need to put that sin away from you. And that's where Zophar goes wrong. As we've seen throughout his other comforters, Zophar is wrong because he is falsely assuming, as we we already mentioned, that Job is not innocent before God. But what we will find as we read Job's response to this advice is that hope, the hope of perfect happiness, is in fact guaranteed in this life for those who serve God. Because... God is a God of mercy, unmerited pardon, and God is a God of grace, unmerited favor. And that is something that Zophar is rightly bringing out from Job chapter 11. He says, God is a God of mercy and grace. Job, there is hope that God could restore you once again. There is hope for you. While there is breath, there is hope because of the character of our God. And that's what Zophar is saying. His application is wrong. His teaching is, is spot on. So God is a God of mercy and God is a God of grace, Job 11. As we transition into Job 12 and about half of Job 13 or most of Job 13, we see that God is not just a God of grace and mercy, but God is a God who is supreme in faithfulness and consistency. So we've picked up the breadcrumb of mercy and of grace. We've we've seen these characteristics of God already. Now let's look at God's faithfulness and his consistency. 
Job's response to Zophar begins in Job 12, verse 1. We know that because it says, And Job answered and said. Now, when I was studying this passage and I came across Job 12, 2, I literally laughed out loud when I read this. Look at what he says. No doubt, but ye are the people, and wisdom shall die with you. Can you feel the sarcasm as Job looks at these three men and he says, no doubt you are the only men on earth with wisdom. The day you all die is the day wisdom dies with you. When when you die, wisdom's going to have to go to the grave, I guess, because you think you've got all the wisdom and, and clearly no one has wisdom but you. And so when you die, I guess wisdom's going to die with you. And this is what Job is saying. He is quite sarcastically putting these men in their place. Job says there's little doubt that there's any wisdom outside of you. But then notice what he says in verse 3. But I have understanding as well as you. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. See, I have wisdom too. I can see what God is doing in this life. And though you might not believe me, I am innocent. So he says, notice verse 4. I am one as mocked of his neighbor who calleth upon God and he answereth him. The just upright man is laughed to scorn. Laugh it up, boys. You're there telling me I'm a sinner. You are mocking me. You are telling me that I'm wrong. Well, well, have at it. Have fun. But it's not going to change the fact that wisdom isn't going to die when you die. That you are not the only ones that have some concept of what it means to be right. So laugh it up while you can. And then he continues in verse uh, 6 and following. In verse 7, Job says, Ask the the beasts, beasts, excuse me, ask the birds or the earth or the fish, and they will tell you that God has made all of these, that the soul of every living thing is in the hand of the Lord. Job is appealing to God's creation to show these false comforters something about God. He spends the rest of the chapter expounding upon the might and the glory of God. In verse 13, he says that God is full of wisdom and strength. Verse 14, God can break that which cannot be unbroken and shut up that which cannot be opened. Verse 15, God can dry up lakes or destroy the earth with flood. Verse 17, God can spoil the wisdom of counselors and judges. Verses 18 and 19, God can destroy the strength of kings and princes. Verse 20, God can remove the wisdom of the wise. Verse 21, God can weaken the strength of the mighty. And so Job's conclusion is actually in verses uh, 1 and 2 of Job 13. And his conclusion is this, I know all of this just as well as you do, I am not inferior in my knowledge. Look what he says. Lo, verse 1 of chapter 13. Mine eyes have seen all this. Mine ear hath heard and understood it. What ye know, the same do I know also. I am not inferior unto you. Look, you know these things. I know these things. The difference is how we are interpreting the events as they're happening. You see God's creation. I see God's creation. You see God's character. I see God's character. But what is the proper application of God's character to the events in question? That is what Job is drawing out in chapters 12 and 13. In verses 3 through 5, he says, none of this is relevant because You are all forgers of lies and physicians of no value. All of your understanding about the character of God has come to naught because you are taking the character of God and you are bringing false suppositions and placing them upon God's character. So it's doing you no good. He says, I'm glad 
you see that God is sovereign and mighty, but it doesn't mean that there's sin in my life. I'm glad you know that God is the almighty God. You are yet wretched comforters. So just shut your mouths and leave me alone. That's really what he's saying. So just stop talking and leave me alone. Well, we know that there's a lot more of Job left, so that doesn't happen. But then Job makes his own point. And remember, we're picking up these breadcrumbs. We've seen God's grace. We've seen God's mercy. We have seen here his consistency in creation. We continue to pick up these breadcrumbs. Look with me in verses 6 through 13 of chapter 13. He says, Hear now my reasoning and hearken to the pleadings of my lips. Will ye speak wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for him? Will ye accept his persons? Will ye contend for God? Is it good that he should search you out? Or as one man mocketh another, do you so mock him? He will surely reprove you if you secretly accept persons. Shall not his excellency make you afraid and his dread fall upon you? Your remembrances are likened to ashes, your bodies to bodies of clay. Hold your peace, let me alone that I may speak, and let come on me what will. And then he continues with his speaking. He says that the men are speaking falsely of God. They are attempting to convince Job that God is judging him when God is not. They are accusing and mocking not just Job, but in doing so, they are mocking God's character. He warns in verse 10 that God will reprove them. And then in verses 14 through 19, he reflects determination that he will bring his complaint before God. And look with me in verse 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I will maintain mine own ways before him. He also shall be my salvation. For an hypocrite shall not come before him. Job says, even if God were to destroy him for his contentions of righteousness, he will appeal to God. He is trusting in God's character that God will remain consistent to redeem the righteous and to, as he says here, slay the hypocrite and will appeal his innocence before God. What Job says here is, I know my God is faithful. I know my God is consistent. And because I serve a faithful and a consistent God, I am going to boldly stand before him knowing that God's character will vindicate me because God is consistent. God is faithful and God will not regard the liar. Job's words here are very stern, but can you see his faith? He knows God to be unchanging. He knows God to be a God that will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Genesis 18.23 is the first time we see that promise. And so Job, excuse me, being a righteous man, will bring his case before God and will trust that God's faithfulness will see him vindicated before he is destroyed. Now, we do see here, as we've mentioned throughout the book of Job, Job's lack of focus. He is still stuck attempting to vindicate vindicate himself instead of vindicating God. The incorrect condemnation of his companions has caused him to turn his eyes away from justifying God and to feel this compulsion to justify himself. But, as we've said many times, Job is, in this case, justified. He was not doing anything sinful here. He was not misrepresenting himself, nor was he misrepresenting God. He had lost focus. His focus had turned inward, but he had never falsely claimed anything against God or about himself.
And so God is great in mercy and grace. God is supreme in faithfulness and consistency. There are two lessons we can learn from this. You know, it is our responsibility and our privilege to turn our hearts and the hearts of those who need comfort to God in the midst of times of great difficulty. There are many ways that the world attempts to comfort people in trial and in tribulation. But we can do no better as believers in our comfort than to turn our eyes and the eyes of those with whom we are seeking to comfort to God. Here, Job's comforters kept turning Job's eyes inward, kept turning Job's eyes away from God. And they could have done no better than to turn Job to God. You know, we live in a world of change. We live in a world of sorrow. Each silver lining has a dark cloud. Life is wonderful, but life will end. Love is wonderful, but every man who loves makes himself vulnerable to pain, to disappointment, and to loss. Times may be good, but times can just as swiftly be bad. In such a world of danger, trial, trouble, tribulation, difficulty, where is comfort? How can we comfort others? Is there something we can appeal to that simply will not change so that regardless of how much circumstances change, regardless of whether things are good or bad in the earthly circumstances, regardless of those constant changes in our lives, is there something we can appeal to that will not change? Well, yes, there is. And that something is God. See, He is unchanging. And so in a world of change, when we need comfort, or when we need to comfort others, where can we turn? Where can we go? What should we do? We should turn to God. To God's character. See, because God is unchanging. You will never wake up, get on your knees before God in the morning, and find out that he's not there anymore. Or that he's in a bad mood, and so he's not interested in talking to you that day. Or that he's not feeling well, so he stayed in bed that morning. This is not our God. He doesn't do that. He is not a man. He's not fickle. He is faithful. He is consistent. You will never wake up one morning and open your Bible and find that the words have changed. And find that God has redefined himself. That he's turning over a new leaf. That it's time to go in a different direction. That's not the God we serve. As a matter of fact, if we did, then he would not be worth serving. We serve a God who is faithful and who is consistent. So there can be no failure of comfort when we turn our eyes to God because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is a God of great grace, great mercy. Continuing to pick up breadcrumbs, he is a God of faithfulness. He is a God of consistency. Let's put the pieces together as we look at Job 13, verse 20, through Job 14, 22. God's mercy, faithfulness, grace, consistency, compel your eternal hope. 
as we've picked up each of these breadcrumbs, these breadcrumbs have brought us to our hope. It has brought us to our comfort in this life. And we read chapter 14 together. In verse 20, Job switches from speaking to his comforters to speaking to God. We've talked about this before. We know that he switches context because in our King James Bibles, the words change from you and your, the pronoun changes from you and your to thee and thou. That tells us that Job has stopped talking to a plural group of people, as the King James indicates. When We have some people here that aren't normally here, so I'm going to explain this this morning. In the King James translation of our Bibles, the translators did something wonderful that no other translation does. When they use thee and thou, it is indicating that either the Hebrew or Greek word that underlies the translation is singular, speaking to one person. When the King James Bible uses you or your or ye, any of those yes, it is indicating that the Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic as the case may be, underlying the English translation is plural, speaking to two or more people. In the book of Job, this is imperative in its helpfulness to us because it is the only way we can know when Job is speaking to his friends and when Job has turned his eyes up to God because the pronoun changes from you, your bad comforters, to thee and he's speaking to God. And so verse 20 of chapter 13 is where we see the transition from Job speaking to his comforters to Job speaking to God. And now he's making his appeal to God. Job asks God in chapter 13, verses 20 through 28, to answer him, to make his sin known if there is any, to explain his suffering. Why does God hide his face from Job, he asks. Why does God continue to pursue a man that has nothing left? Job has been ground into nothing, he says. Is he being punished for years, uh, for the sin of years gone by? Is he being punished for sins of his youth? What's going on here? Because he knows that he has no unconfessed sin in his life at the time, that he has done right before God, that he is righteous before God. So what is going on here? And, and he just doesn't know. He feels like he says his feet are chained and like he's being picked apart as a moth would slowly consume a garment. Have you ever seen a fish eat Maybe you have a fish tank. And, you know, when you fl- when you crumble up those flakes and you put them in, the fish eat those flakes in one bite. But have you ever seen perhaps a fish eat another fish? Or a fish eat something larger? Have you ever seen how they go about eating that? You see them nibbling, picking it apart, bit by bit, just slowly nibbling until the thing is whittled down to nothing. That is the idea of how Job feels here. He says, God, I feel like you're just picking me apart bit by bit. The way a moth would just slowly pick apart a garment. The way a fish would just slowly pick apart its prey. I feel like I'm just being picked apart bit by bit. That Every area of my life is just being picked apart as I am in the midst of this suffering. But as Job transitions into chapter 14, he proclaims a hope. He proclaims an expectation. And we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at at that. We've already read Job 14, so I'm not going to read it again. But he says, the only hope that I have, God, in the midst of my suffering is found in 
you. In verses 1 through 3, Job states that he knows that a man's days are short. God, I know that man's days are very short. He appeals in verses 4 through 6 to God, asking that God would just turn his anger from him for the few days he has left. God, I, I'm going to die soon anyway. I know it. I can feel it. I'm, I'm, I'm so ill. I've got all these boils. I'm, I'm on death's doorstep. Just give me peace for the last few days of my life. He longs for death, not for death's sake, but in the earnest expectation of something more to come. Notice it with me. Verse Beginning in verse 7. He describes the hope of a tree. He says, when a tree is cut down, because its root structure is still in place, there is hope that that tree will spring up again. If that tree is given water and sunshine, even though it has been cut down, because its roots are in place, it might very well grow again. But he says in verses 10 through 12, such is not the case for man. When a man dies and he's put into the ground, there's no chance of him springing up out of the ground again. There is no reviving into a new life. There is no reincarnation. There is no reanimation. When a man is dead, he is dead. Now, we'll see in the next couple of verses that Job is not saying here that there's no resurrection. He's talking on a physical plane. When a man physically dies, that man is put into the ground and he's done. His life is over. As the New Testament says, it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. But in verses 13 through 15, Job recalls his hope. Hope that there is a resurrection of the dead unto bodies untouched by sorrow and trouble. Notice verse 13. Oh, that thou wouldst hide me in the grave, that thou wouldst keep me secret until the wrath be passed, and thou wouldst appoint me a set time and remember me. He says, God, if only there would be, if only you would just set me in the grave, Hide me in the grave until all of your wrath is past, until all the judgment for sin is over. And then after the judgment of sin is over, if only you would remember me again. He says in verse 14, if a man die, shall he live again? Well, Job thinks so and is determined to wait, he says, until my change comes. Until he can live a life in a new body, a body untouched by sin, and a world untouched by sin. Job says in verse 15 that he will wait, and on the day that God calls him, he will answer, and he is coming to God. But for today, the day that Job is suffering in, all he has is hope. Verses 16 through 22 remind us of Job's current state. He he says again that he is in suffering for the time. And until the day of Job's great resurrection, the day that he is longing for with all of his heart, he is still in sorrow. But his sorrow didn't override his hope. And the very same hope that Job had in that day is the same hope that you and I have in this life. Let me apply the concepts that Job is teaching of the resurrection to the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18 says this, But I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, 
comfort one another with these words. The same promise of comfort in 1 Thessalonians is the hope that Job was clinging to in Job 14. He says, there is a day coming when my change will come. God, just hide me in the grave until your wrath is over. The comfort of the believer in this life, of you and I in this life, is not found in this life. It's found in the resurrection that ushers us into the life that is to come. Consider 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 to 19. But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if... if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Without the hope of the resurrection, our lives of sacrifice for our Savior are nothing but misery. It was all a waste of time. It was all a waste of effort. It was all a waste of sacrificially living. The cost of discipleship is very high. And yet, as we live this life of discipleship, the disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ, what comforts us in the persecutions, what comforts us in the distresses, what comforts us in the perplexities of this life is that there is a life to come where God will wipe away all tears from our eyes where there will be no more sorrow and no more pain. Is that your hope for today? Now, there are two groups in this room, and the question applies to each. For those who have never made the personal decision of Jesus Christ as your Savior, I can stand upon the Word of God and definitively tell you that this hope is not yours. That if you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior by grace, through faith, in the finished work of Jesus Christ, nothing that you have done, not by works, lest any man should boast. There's no amount of going to church. There's no amount of obeying your parents. There's no amount of reading your Bible. There's no amount of communion or anything of the sort that can get you to heaven. The Scriptures say it is by grace, through faith alone. If you have not done that, you have no hope of resurrection unto life. And yet you can have that hope. Because Jesus Christ said, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The only hope that we have in this life is the hope in the life to come, secured by the blood of Jesus Christ alone. Now, to those of us who are and again in this room. Where does your hope rest? You have accepted the gift of salvation through belief, yet how easy is it for us, like for Job, to lose our focus? How easy is it for us to hope in the things of this life? How easy is it for us to allow the world and the things of the world to be our source of comfort in difficult times, our source of provision in times of need, and our source of happiness in times of sorrow. How easy is it for us to lose sight of God in the midst of the many things that this world tries to offer us? May I remind you that if 
your only hope of Christ is a hope of material blessing in this life. If your only hope of Christ rests in this life, if your only hope rests in the material things of this earth, then you have no hope. Because the only hope that is enduring is a hope that is founded upon the breadcrumbs that we've picked up today. God's grace, God's mercy, God's faithfulness, God's consistency. And if our hope is not resting upon that faithfulness, which brings us to the hope of eternal life and the resurrection of the dead, then we have no hope. Our hope is in the Lord and in Him alone.